0: Lasso. Welcome back, Birgit. Glad to see you back. You must be feeling better, yes? I'm glad. Good. Oh, Lasso. You see, I came a bit especially prepared today. Um, I thought it would be worthwhile to spend, I don't know how, how, exactly how long, 20 minutes, 25 minutes, something like that, uh, to give you a very clear sense of the distinction between the shamatha practice we're doing that we'll venture into that's now fairly familiar, Settling the Mind, which clearly is already on the cusp between shamatha and vipassana, right? If you went to almost any vipassana t- uh, center in Burma, in Sri Lanka, in Thailand, or all over the West, and you describe what we're doing in Settling the Mind, they would say, oh, well, vipassana, good, good vipassana practice, okay? And why should we argue with them? You know, does it give rise to insights and so forth? Yes, it definitely does, and it does double duty. Because it, you know, when practiced all the way through, then it dissolves your mind into its natural state. So, but what is the distinction? And this is what I'd like to draw today. And I brought my computer so that you can see that um, you, know, you can see the source. Uh, that you know, this, this California guy, whatever my opinion might be about the distinction between settling the mind in its natural state and Dzogchen meditation, or specifically open presence, um, doesn't really matter. I mean, I don't count. If we line up, you know, Longsham Jamba and Dujum Lingba and Lerap Lingba and Alan Wallace, who's that? <laughs> Why did you put him in that pantheon? Go back to your marmot hole. you know. <laughs> so my opinion really doesn't matter. I mean, that's just, I mean, that's just telling you the truth. My, whatever I might think or not think just doesn't matter. But I'll be citing Dujum Lingba and he's right up there with, with the other great ones and his view does matter because he speaks for the whole tradition with tremendous authority. And So that's what I, what I thought I would share with you, and directly uh, from his own words, I think in a very sound translation, I mean, translation nothing special, but I think it's accurate. Uh, and what I'll be citing from is his own commentary, which I've translated for the first time, his, his own commentary to a, a modern classic, a mind treasure of Dujung Lingba, many of you probably know of already, and that is Buddhahood without meditation, or it's called Nangjang in Tibetan. It's really a classic, and quite a number of Nyingma Lamas teach it. Quite a number have the oral transmission, as I've also received it from my own teacher, Gautra Rinpoche. Um, but the commentary has never been translated, and it will be published. We, I just got word, was it this morning or yesterday, um, a, a Buddhist publisher definitely wants to publish it, so that's nice. It's nice to do the hard work and then find somebody who wants to actually publish it. So this is a very small excerpt from a rather large commentary an extraordinary commentary, so I think you'll enjoy it even when, when it's out and even when you want to look at it. But the, the term, just for your own reference, uh, is called chok in Tibetan, chok And it means just to, to let be, to let be, or it's often translated, and, I, and I'll go along with this translation because I think it's, it's okay, is open presence. Open presence. Um, and now, this is Dujum Lingba addressing this, and as you listen to it, it's just going to be a fairly short excerpt, but as you listen to it, then I invite you already, as you're attending to what I'll be reading and giving a little bit of commentary to, is then note the distinctions between the practices, its four modes of it, the four, four kinds of Chok Sha, open presence, then just try to hold in mind with mindfulness what were the instructions for settling the mind in its natural state, and bear in mind... There's no particular, there's no such thing as a shamatha view. There's a Madhyamaka view, there's a Buddhist view, sattrantaka view, Dzogchen view, Mahamudra view, but there's no such thing as a shamatha view. There's no such thing. That is, of course, I've talked about the substrate consciousness, but you don't have to believe in that. You can practice perfectly well, and then you just discover the, the substrate consciousness without having a view about it before. It may be helpful to know about it, but certainly not imperative. So there's no view that necessarily goes along with the practice of shamatha. You can be theistic, atheistic, agnostic, Buddhist, and so forth and so on. But when it comes to chokshā, this open presence as a Dzogchen practice, it's really the core practice of tekchū, the breaking through to pristine awareness. Right. Well, as we'll see, if you don't have the view, you don't have open presence. And so I'm, I'm, I'm emphasizing this because in the popularization of all schools of Buddhism, and Hinduism, too. TM, popular, popularized version of, of Hindu meditation, uh, and mantra recitation, and so forth, in the popularization of Dzogchen, when, uh, then often it's, uh, it's at least somewhat decontextualized. So here's the open presence, and then it looks immediately like, ah, that's what I always wanted. Buddhism with no, what's it called? clap trap, with no mumbo-jumbo. No beliefs. Buddhism with no beliefs. I like that. I just, just open presence. Now oh, this is much easier than shamata vipassana, this is cool. Okay? It's not Dzogchen. So let's see what Dujum Lingba has to say about open presence. So he begins, first of all, by immediately linking it with the Dzogchen view. And, he, and here's what he says, regarding the view of open presence. So if you don't have the view, you don't have, you're not practicing open presence. The great Pervasive expansiveness of the view transcends intellectual grasping to signs. Signs are just exactly those objects that we identify by way of conceptual designation. They make sense within a conceptual framework. This transcends intellectual grasping to signs, does not succumb to bias to bias or extremes, and realizes unconditioned reality, which is like space. So the view... If you're practicing open presence, then it's imbued with the view, and the view realizes unconditioned reality, which we'll see is emptiness. It's shunyata. You've realized ultimate reality. So if you have not realized emptiness, you're not practicing open presence. You're sitting there like a very happy marmot, maybe sitting in the sun, but it's not open presence. So that's the view that is imbued with, that is, it's a view that transcends all conceptual designations, all biases of of existence, non-existence, coming and going, permanent, impermanent, and so forth, and it realizes emptiness, which is like space. There's the view of the open presence. Then we have the meditation of open presence. Regarding the meditation of open presence, just as the water of the great ocean is unfathomable, whatever arises is none other than the nature of ultimate reality. And that is, all of your perceptions of anything whatsoever, you see, is simply a display of ultimate reality. That is the translation for Dhamata. Dhammata, ultimate reality, synonymous with emptiness. So, as you're just resting in open presence, you're sustaining an ongoing flow of realization that all appearances are none other than emptiness. Emptiness is form, form is emptiness. If you lack that realization, you're not practicing open presence. Just as water, is permeated by limpid luminosity. In ultimate reality, there is no samsara or nirvana, no joy or sorrow, and so forth, for one realizes that everything dissolves into even pervasiveness, as displays of clear light, clear light, rusal clear light. That's a synonym for rikpa. So now here again, unpacking the meditation of open presence. You're seeing that all, that all phenomena are nothing other than they dissolve into the even pervasiveness and they're all displays of rikpa. That is, you're just sustaining that view of seeing all appearances and you're totally open to all of them. There's no selectivity. You're not selecting, unlike shamatha. You're open to everything, but you're seeing all appearances as simply being empty by nature and not only realization of emptiness, but also seeing all appearances as displays of pristine awareness. And that's genocide. It's the the worst things that happen in the universe, and the best thing that happen. And you're seeing them all equally, as displays of rikpa. In other words, that's quite an astonishing view. Regarding the pristine, pristine awareness of open presence, just as the supreme mountain in the center of this world system is unmovable, Meru, pristine awareness transcends time without wavering even for an instant from the nature of its own great luminosity. So you've heard many times, if, if you're doing this parallel back and forth, awareness holding its own ground. Well now, what's the awareness holding its own ground? Pristine awareness. But it's not holding its own ground in the present moment. It's holding its own ground in the fourth time, which transcends the demarcations of past, present, and future. And it doesn't waver for even an instant, from its own, from the nature of its own great luminosity. So, if you're not realizing rikpa, if you're not viewing from the perspective perspective of rikpa, you're not practicing open presence. Regarding appearances and the mind of open presence, all appearing phenomena are naturally empty and naturally luminous. Empty, empty of inherent nature. Naturally luminous. They are the naturally luminous displays of rikpa. They are not apprehended by the intellect, nor grasped by the ordinary mind, nor subdued by awareness. Rather, they dissolve into great even pervasiveness so they are liberated with no basis for acceptance or rejection, no distinction between luminosity and emptiness, and with no ambivalence. To to, to summarize all these points, the great perfection of ultimate reality, the great perfection of dhammata, is the great Universal basis of samsara and nirvana and the three paths of the shravakas, the bodhisattva, the mahayana, as well as the great absolute space that encompasses samsara and nirvana and the three paths. Truly perceiving its character and nature of being is the view. So this non-dual realization of emptiness and rikpa, truly perceiving its nature, that is the view. And when you see your own nature, and of course your own nature is nothing other than rikpa. And when you see your own nature, you gain mastery over the great, original, primordial ground of being. By holding your own ground within yourself, you see now the supernova of just awareness resting in its own place. By holding your own ground, your own ground being the great perfection, rikpa, pristine awareness itself. Knowing you are that, this is your nature. By holding your own ground within yourself, awareness awakens to its own nature. And meditation without wavering from great even pervasiveness, free of conceptual elaborations, is devoid of any objective referent. So again, now you've absolutely broken through any bifurcation or dualistic grasping onto subject and object. You're resting in open presence where that has vanished. When a water drop merges into the ocean, it is indivisible from the ocean and one space on the outside and inside of a broken vase cannot be differentiated, but extends into a single all-pervasive space. Likewise, in the identification within yourself of the Dharmakaya awareness that is present as the ground, there is nothing to be altered and nothing else with which to engage. Without knowing that, under the influence of self-grasping, and self-grasping is just all manner of reification, the grasping onto subject, object, and so forth, without knowing that, under the influence of of self-grasping, despite the fact that there is no distinction of outer and inner regarding the ground of being and the mind, the self is demarcated as being over here, and the ground of being is demarcated as being over there, thus bifurcating outer and inner. Just as water in its naturally fluid state freezes solid due to currents of cold wind, The ground of being of the naturally liberated state is bound up by the cords of self grasping, and the entire cycle of existence appears and is established as real. That blows my mind completely, which is the idea. Just blow it. So the notion of skipping shamatha and going directly to this, is fantasy. The notion of skipping realization of emptiness, vipassana, and saying, oh, that's too hard, I don't like all that analyst, analytical business, all that philosophy business. I like open presence. His holiness has heard about this. I was with him in Brisbane last year, and he just made a fleeting played We are talking about Dzogchen, and I was asking about some sources for Dzogchen, vis-a-vis Majyama, as I recall. And he gave me some sources. And then he said, this is, I'm paraphrasing very closely, he said, this is the authentic one. Otherwise, notion of open presence. And he just burst into laughter. It's uh, Like, you know, an eight-year-old kid saying, quantum cosmology, you know, quantum and cosmology. And thinking you're practicing quantum cosmology. Because you know how to say the words. So that's it. That's it. The meditation of that choksha, of that open presence, of course, is intended to be continuous. That it just it flows, it saturates, it pervades, at least all of your waking state, all of it, and as much as possible your deep sleep and your dream state. The idea is, of course, you're in, in touch with reality, engaged with reality at all times. How one could even imagine that you maintain such continuity without shamatha? I have to say, it defies my imagination. So there's the base, a suitable vessel that's stable and clear. It's kind of like, duh. I mean, why are we even talking about it if you can't maintain your attention on anything for more than 10 seconds? It's just silly, right? And on that basis, then he immediately said if you're practicing open presence, it's imbued with the realization of emptiness. And that's sustained with the union of shamatha and vipassana, realizing emptiness but then it's not simply resting in an awareness of the dream-like nature of phenomena, the apparitional nature of phenomena, because it's also seeing, it's directly perceiving, from the perspective of Rigpa, all appearances as displays of Rigpa. Now we've just moved beyond Majamaka, and that's Dzogchen, and you're viewing it from a, rea- from a perspective that is beyond time, and for which the whole of samsara and nirvana equally appears as displays of Rigpa. So, then just by that short description, that's definitive, it's representative, it's authoritative, and I just read it. Uh, one sees this is why, in the classic approach of Dujum Padma Padmasambhava, Lerap Lingba, and so forth, the great ones of history, that, of course, they often will skip it because, like, how often does Stephen Hawking really talk about algebra or Newtonian mechanics? Why should he? He's assuming that if you're engaging with his level of physics, you should know Newtonian mechanics inside and out. I mean, you got that in high school, right? We don't need to go back and talk about that. That's why in so much of the Dzogchen literature, including the text I just read, The Buddha Without Meditation, as I recall, I've trans- I retranslated it and the whole commentary. Off the top of my head, I don't recall any reference to Shamatha. He's saying, yeah, you got that elsewhere, right? We're, we're dealing at the, the, the post-doc level here. We don't need to cover every single thing, right? We're, we're talking about Dzogchen, right? And this is contextualized within you've, you've gone through high school and college and so forth and you're coming in prepared, right? And so this is why it's kind of a chuckle when people skip all of that and say, oh, just give me Dzogchen, that's the part I like. It's kind of silly. But we can see there, I mean, there it is. I mean, it was, to my mind, a marvelous short description of this practice and giving some intimation of the tremendous profundity of that, which is divorced from that profundity if you don't realize emptiness and cannot be sustained if you don't have shamatha. But within that, within that continuum, then one can see, well, that that could really actually lead to perfect awakening in one lifetime. But now among the many types of shamatha, this marvelous array of practices, techniques of shamatha that you find in the Pali Canon, and so magnificently presented with such precision by Buddhaghosa in a path of purification, tremendous array there. And in the Mahayana tradition, focusing on a Buddha image or this or that or the other thing, then one can see among that whole array that all of these Dzogchen masters, of course, they knew the whole spread. People like Longchen Rabjamba and Dujum Lingba and so forth, they're tremendous scholars. Uh, so they know all of that. But among all the methods, the ones most frequently highlighted, it's, of course, the one we're just about to do, taking the mind as a path. And now you can see, if you can just hold in mind a little bit of that, those four modes, of the view, the meditation, and so forth, uh, the different types of open presence, why one can see, but oh, but this is, this is a mini-cosm. This is a mini-cosm or a microcosm of the Dzogchen, open presence. Because here we're focusing on just one domain. We're not going to this so-called real world. right? We're just going into that little one apparitional world of visualizations, of imagination, mental images, memories, fantasies, and so forth. We're just focusing on that one cinema, single-pointedly, which in a way we already know. I mean, it's kind of like intuitively obvious. The thoughts that occur to us, the images that occur to us, do they exist from their own side? It's kind of like, how could they? What would that even mean, right? Or from the waking state, if you look back on a dream you had, and he said, did did those people appear in the dream, did they really exist from their own side? Were they really there? And from waking perspective, you say, well, that's a silly question. Why are you even asking it? Of course, there weren't people that dropped into my mind. You know that's silly. No, they were just empty appearances, and so within this cinema of the mind, to do everything he said, to have that realization—that number one—but this is a microcosm. This is if we—if anybody who knows Amer- American baseball, this is little league. This is little league, before going to the major leagues, right? Major leagues is Ok Chen, the four the four types of open presence. But little league—I mean, I, I imagine most baseball players probably played in little league when they were kids to learn how to swing the bat and so forth. And so this is Little League. And that is focused on this one domain where if you ask yourself, as I'm attending to these thoughts and images and so forth, do they exist from their own side, having their own inherent nature? The answer is, well, no. Why? No, no. The neuroscientists would say no. The psychologists would say no. The contemplative would say no. They're not, they're not really there. I don't even know what there is supposed to mean. How far in front of me are they supposed to be? It doesn't make any sense. So there's already some within this little little microcosm, some sense of the emptiness of these phenomena. You know, they're just appearances, right? And then also, as you're attending to them, doesn't it isn't kind of intuitively obvious, without any indoctrination, that all these appearances are simply displays of awareness. The appearance is just coming out of the substrate or the space of your mind. They're illuminated by your awareness. They have no existence other than the space of your mind. They have no existence other than being illuminated by your own awareness. They're not really out there hanging up themselves, you know. And so that little, that that parallel with all phenomena in the universe, being empty of inherent nature and all of them without exception, galaxies, distant galaxies, big bangs and all of that, all of these displays of rikpa, well, okay, meanwhile, back on this little microcosm, in that little field, all of these are empty, all of these are nothing other than displays of awareness. And then, of course, whether they're horrendously awful appearances or incredibly beautiful appearances insofar as you're just attending to them without distraction, without grasping, then you don't have to accept or reject any of them. Right? They're just, they're just appearances. They're not doing any harm. This is what Kao Chukamichi really hammered in on me when I was doing a six-month retreat on this many, many years ago, settling the mind, and he said, Alan, if a thousand demons were to attack you simultaneously when you're doing this practice. Not one can help, not one can harm you. And if a thousand Buddhists came to bless you, they couldn't bless you either. What are their empty appearances? What kind of blessing do they have? What does what a slideshow or a rainbow, what, how, how is that supposed to be a source of blessing? Silly, you know, let's not be superstitious here. So, either way, it's just, it's Maras, it's Buddhas, it's Jesus, it's, it's Krishna, whoever. There it is in the domain of mind, it's, you know, it's just an empty appearance. And so there it is. They're all equally. The most samsaric things arising in your mind, the most nirvanic or blessed or dharmic and spiritual things arising in your mind. They're all just empty appearances equally. And so in this practice of settling the mind, there's no acceptance, no rejection, no preference. And while you may not be resting in rikpa, you are letting your awareness that you're familiar with that you can identify right now. You are resting in your own place in that stillness, unmoved, Not caught up in the drama. So the parallels go on and on and on, right? But this is Little League, but a really important Little League, right? To gain the kind of insights within that little domain that are microcosmic reflections of the big show, the whole of reality. And then the intermediary, the intermediary, of course for which the settling the mind in its natural state is a perfect preparation, is dream yoga, in which now you are perhaps even personified. Maybe you've taken on some some form within the dream and then I think you can just fill in all the empty spaces. In the lucid dream, within that context, insofar as you're lucid, what do you realize? You realize, since you're lucid, you realize all of these appearances are empty even though, again, there's Mikhail over there, and I can walk over and touch him, and his knee is just as hard as I thought it would be. Nevertheless, there's just nothing there. And I'm not really moving. I mean, within a dream, how can you? what does it really mean to say that you're moving from here to there when there's neither here nor there? There's nowhere. You're not in, you're not in space. When you're in a dream, you're not in space. Except for dream space, and that's that's just an appearance, but it's an empty appearance. And of course, you know how fast it can quick, how fast it can change. You can be in Guadalajara, and suddenly you're in Querétaro. And what happened to the space in between? Oh, what space? This is a dream I do I, what I like. You know, Discontinuities all over the place. right? So there you are within the lucid dream. You're realizing, number one, you know your presence, this little caricature, this little figure that is ostensibly appearing as you empty of inherent nature, everybody you meet empty, the entire dreamscape is empty, you know that because you know it's a dream, but you also know that all of this is simply displays of really, on the whole, nothing other than your own awareness, that all the appearances arising in your own substrate, it's a private show, you know, overall, and so everything is just a display of your own mind, equally so, equally so. So I know when, when I've led a number of workshops with Stephen Laberge, he has one very very charming cartoon that he he shows I think all the time, and it's of a uh, couple of sweet old. Uh, what did what did you call them, uh, Jane? What did, uh, a diddy? a little, old, Diddy? Uh, a, a biddy an old biddy. Yes, a biddy. Yes, an, an old woman. Hello, would you like some tea? That kind of old woman, right? Yeah. yeah. So an old biddy. So the couple of two two old biddies, two old biddies, and they're in a house, and there's this. Great outside, like a 10 foot ogre. I mean, just a big monster, you know, knocking on the door. And one old biddy turns the other and said, I know it's a monster, I know it's a monster, monster myrtle, but maybe it's a monster in need of help. (laughs) You know, and so whether it's the monster, whether it's his two sweet old biddies, whatever it is. in fact i 'll tell you something actually from stephen leberton it 's very public so i 'm not invading his privacy, but um, in his own many many lucid dreams, he had so some of you have in your settling the mind you have soundtracks that just won 't give up. some of you have hell realms that keep on coming back again and again like a broken record. Some of you will undoubtedly have memories that come back and say, "Oh, when are you going to give me a break right and so as we have these recurring themes, they keep on recurring until we finally pass the exam, you know, and attend to them without aversion, without desire, without fear, without hope. And then, okay, now now you can vanish. Well, Stephen the Bears, and the parallels are just marvelous. How all of this ties together. That's what I was seeking when I was a teenager, is something that was really integrated in a whole, where all of the parts made sense to all of the other parts, and I did not find that in my Western education. Man, that's in spades in this tradition. Everything connects. Everything is reflecting. It's like, like a house of mirrors where everything reflects everything else. That's my sense of it. just enormously satisfying. But the point here, Stephen LeBert, when he was going through this phase of really having intensive, lots and lots of lucid dreams when he was a grad student at Stanford and he was doing his dissertation on lucid dreaming, he said there was one monster, and of course the word sounds kind of like silly something for children, but he's, he's an adult, and this monster was really terrifying. OK, really terrifying. And the monster kept on cropping up. There he is, he's really getting good at lucid dreams. Every night he's having at least one lucid dream. But this monster keeps on showing up. right? And it's really terrifying. Well, they're showing up in a lucid dream. So what does he do? He says, oh, a monster's shown up. I am out of here. And up and away. You know, he flies away. Why, why should he hang out where the monster is? And, and he escapes. You know, he's Superman. Stephen, you know, off to the sky. It's a, it's a bird. It's a plane. No, it's Stephen the You know? And he would escape every single time. But then the next night, that monster, doggone monster, would come back again. And I think he might have tried transforming it. Okay, he, now he knows he transformed. A big monster comes up, transforms into a Cocker Spaniel. Mission accomplished. The next night, the monster's back again. And not as a Cocker Spaniel, as a really gnarly, nasty, mean spirited, very threatening monster. And he did, he pulled every trick out of the book, you know, escaping from it, transforming it, and so forth and so on. And then finally, and this is what I admire, I mean, admire many aspects of the man, but he did this without instruction. He didn't have any Tibetan Lama guiding him through. He was kind of really a pioneer in the field. Finally, he tried all the other tricks, and he would really, frankly, like this monster to give him a break. You know, it's kind of like we've been here and done this. And so, the monster comes to him again, and whatever light it was, it turned on. It was a really good light. And when the monster came to him, once again, the same old monster coming to him, rather than trying to escape, which he can so easily, but of course, where are you flying from and where are you flying to in a dream? Exactly how far do you need to go to get away from the monster? And how much is in between? Right. Um, Instead of escaping and instead of transforming it, taking all the fearful qualities away, the monster came, approached him, and Stephen just took the bold step of looking the monster right in the eyes. And as doing so, he just this thought arose: "Your sentient being, like myself, we should be free of suffering. Maybe free. Something like that." It's not a direct quote, but it's very close. But he was just attending to this creature as similar to himself, something with whom he could empathize. He found the common ground. Now, that's the core. He found the common ground, and he simply wished this monster well. The monster dissolved and never came back. Okay? So, I hope that was helpful. I know it was helpful. it was helpful to me to even hear my own voice, because I was reading Dujum Lingba's works, and he is, he is absolutely extraordinary and his words are extraordinary. But seeing this marvelous dynamic between this extraordinary preparation, which is inviting, doesn't you don't need to have a big belief system, and so forth, and so on, you jump right in, see how it goes. But then the parallels between this immeasurably deeper uh, chok-chok, the open presence, with those various qualities, but how this is preparing it for us. And then you can see, realizing, within this little microcosm of your own mind, seeing through this practice how all these appearances are indeed empty appearances. And that is one of the perks, according to Lerap Lingba, that you see appearances as simply empty forms, empty forms, and you may start actually that might start flowing over into your waking experience, your in-between session experience of seeing the appearances here in in our physical environment as not substantial things out there, but empty appearances. But the core of it is realizing the empty appearances and having, again, let up lingba, just intuiting a, a powerful certainty. A powerful certainty through settling the mind in its natural state that whatever comes up, whatever comes up in the space of the mind, nothing there can hurt me. And having knowing that, knowing that indubitably, that's one of the perks of it. So holding that in mind, and that's, of course, in, wake, in, in daytime practice, then just imagine starting to weave this over into sleeping. So you're settling your mind at natural state as you fall asleep. You prep yourself with anticipatory mindfulness. You become lucid in the dream, and now you're doing exactly the same practice, but you may get in there and actually start molding the dream to explore, explore it more, more thoroughly. But again, bringing these same insights into the dream, realizing the emptiness, realizing all of these are simply apparitions of your own awareness, developing that same quality of fearlessness in the dream, for very good reason. They're all empty appearances, displays of your own mind. And so within that context, a realization of emptiness, realization of all appearances being empty and nothing other than displays of your substrate consciousness, or just call it your awareness. And then going from there, And then in the waking state, going from there and practicing Vipassana, investigating the empty nature of all phenomena, and saying, yeah. And now, when you're doing that, you're really a bona fide Vipassana practitioner. And then you read the classic teachings, like that of Dujom Lingva. He's marvelous on this point of Vipassana, of realizing the emptiness of all phenomena. Then the theme that comes up again and again in the waking state is, all these appearances are like a dream. Well, if you have become an adept at dream yoga, and it says all these are like a dream, you say, oh, well, I know what you're talking about because I know what a dream is like. I've had 100 lucid dreams, and I explored them thoroughly. And you're saying this is similar? You've got a massive database there. When it says this is dreamlike, like say, oh, yeah, but okay, but I know, what that's, I know what you're talking about because I know, I know what dreams are like. So you're really prepared for that and you've softened things up by seeing within that little microcosm of the space of the mind, seeing there, directly directly perceiving the emptiness of all phenomena there, now you're coming out to the other six domains. And it's not to say you'll immediately realize, but you're really prepped. With your shamatha, with your dream yoga, you are really prepped, superbly prepared, to now realize the empty nature of all phenomena in the waking state. And as astonishing and perhaps as ridiculous as it sounds, to realize in the waking state that nothing in this state right here—this is intersubjective reality, this consensual reality, right? So we know full well what we're talking about. We're talking about this world that physicists, biologists, and so forth study, that this world that we're attending to. There is nothing in this world that exists from its own side. Nothing here is any more substantial or inherently existent than any of the appearances in a dream. I have to say, on the surface, that just sounds flat out crazy. But a number of you have now asked people, in, when you were having a lucid dream, you've asked the question that I asked in my second lucid dream of finding anybody else, do you think this is a dream? Do you, think that, do you know this is a dream? And people reported me th- thus far, the answer is either, no it's not, or don't bother me, from the other people in the dream. So again, I'm very curious, and I have, there's no dogma here, there's no right answer except for just telling what's happened, um, but thus far. I haven't heard of anybody in a lucid dream finding anybody else in the dream who's also lucid, who will say, yes, I know this is a dream. Quite interesting that. So why? Or maybe you'll find them. Maybe you'll find a whole bunch of them. Maybe you'll meet your your, your root guru. And maybe your root guru will have a different answer. Who knows? Maybe you'll meet the Buddha. Maybe the Buddha said, you think you're awake, buster. I'm really awake. I don't know. So... So, prepped for then gaining realization of the emptiness of the nature of all phenomena, the waking state, which you can imagine would be enormously liberating. Enormously liberating, not only from mental suffering, but now from physical suffering, because you see your body, you actually experience your body as being about as substantial as a, a, a network of rainbows, with no core, no essence, and nothing there that you're clinging onto and reifying as real, let alone I or mine bunch of empty appearances, your own body, right? And so having that realization, and upon the basis of that, then if you're introduced to the Dzogchen view and the Dzogchen meditation, the four types of open presence, couched within a way of life that's thoroughly imbued with the Dzogchen view and saturated by Dzogchen meditation, so that the view, the meditation, the way of life are all just melted into one integral whole if you're there then you'll impress people when you die because you'll do something extraordinary is bound to happen you'll either be hanging out there for days or weeks in the clear light of death maybe you'll be one of those amazing shrieking shrinking yogis or if you come to the conclusion of it go out with a bang go out with a rainbow and just dissolve and then you show. you show. A friend of mine who is, is a Roman Catholic monk, I think I told you about him, but he sought out, when he was told by his, his teacher, Brother David Stendelros, Benedictine monk, that he should go to Tibet and do research on people who achieve rainbow body, he had heard of one quite recently. This was about ten years ago or so. And it was one monk in eastern Tibet, and it was quite recent, was just a year or so earlier, this monk had quite clearly achieved rainbow body. Rainbow, rainbow, ra- rainbow lights, and then look for his body. And all they found, he was a monk. So all they found was his robes, and I think maybe hair and nails, and that was it. But the monk, he was a Geshe. He was a Geshe. But for as long as he was alive, uh, he, the people in the neighborhood, when they would refer to him, Geshe, Geshe Achu. Geshe Achu. Not Lama Achu, but Geshe Achu. Uh, he just Geshe. You know, lots of, there are a lot of Geshe's around, a lot of This There's just one more Geshe, and as far as they were concerned, oh, Geshe yeah, he's, the general consensus was, yeah, very sweet Lama, he really like, recites really Omani om Pemahum a lot. He really likes Om Pemahung. sweet, sweet Geshe. Goes around Om Manipemahum, Om mani Pema. So it's kind of like, so we have one person who knows poker here. So it's like person saying, oh, I just got a pair of threes. Oh money, pay me home. Oh money, pay me home. Just a pair of three. I'll just bet five cents. Oh money, pay me home. Oh money, pay me home. I'll take, I'll take, th- I'll take three. Oh money, pay me home. Full house. Ha-ha! <laughs> <laughs> then he showed his hand. Then he showed his hand. Oh, nobody. Oh, I guess he must have been really good at oh money, pay me home. So it's quite common, quite common among the really accomplished ones. They keep it really quiet. Oh, yeah. So for the practice, now we'll jump in. I said that would be 25 minutes. So 25 minutes times two. <laughs> two for the price of one. So find your comfortable position, and you may just want to slip into it, just immediately in your own way. But if you'd like to go step by step, what I suggest is... Bring forth that quality of mindfulness, bring it to the body first. A little bit easier, attending to whatever is arising in the space of the body, without distraction, with, without or grasping, and then shift over to the mind. Besides that, you know what to do. So let's practice for one session. There's not much mail, so see if I can possibly answer these succinctly. Several weeks ago, you touched on a practice you called the helicopter that helps one to focus more quickly during a practice section. Could you elaborate on that practice? Yeah, rather than the slow takeoff. Brian, do you, do you recall? The, I, I remember the analogy. Do you remember exactly what method? Because I think it came up in our conversation. Didn't well, it? Uh, yeah. I, um, I- uh, um, Alma, Amita? Yeah. Yeah, it was your question. I, question you it I, thought, it, I thought it came so up we in... Talked, in you know, we so, spoke about it in another context yeah. regarding a, a totally different approach. Uh, why don't you tell, tell what you remember? Well, uh, the approach uh, that you gave me had to do with guru yoga. With? Guru yoga. Guru yoga. Ah, yeah. yeah that's And the, the what you mentioned uh, in regard to uh, his question was... Uh, it was very brief. And mm-hmm. I, yeah. yeah. Uh, and So I'll, I'll respond in two ways, and I will try to be succinct. The Guru Yoga, for those for whom that, really, that practice really makes sense. So if you've never heard of it and so forth, just don't worry about it. But for those of you who've already been introduced to it and you feel at home, you're really drawn to the Guru Yoga, it's a very powerful way for a quick start. That You don't have to, you know, it, it's just that. You, you classic Mahayana Buddhist practice, Vajrayana practice. You take refuge, you develop bodhicitta. You invoke the blessings of the guru. The guru comes to the crown of your head, dissolves indivisibly body, speech, and mind with your own, and such that you imagine. Of course, this is moving into realm of possibility. You imagine your own mind being that of the guru, indivisible, non-dual. And then from that perspective, now that the guru is looking out from your own perspective, non-dually from your own mind, from that perspective, then you engage in whatever practice you like. That's a real quick start. So there's no dawdling about, right? And apart from that... um, it's a good idea not to meander one's way into a, into a, a session, kind of letting, well, it's gonna you know, be 24 minutes, so what's five minutes here or there, and kind of dithering about for a while, a little bit of rumination, rumination, and so forth. And so what can just kind of kickstart it quickly is just whatever your practice is, just go full throttle right in the beginning. So, for example, if it's one way, I mean, the Tibetans have been doing this for, for probably centuries, at least for a long time, and that is whatever the practice is gonna be, they settle body, speech, and mind in the natural state, and then go immediately to mindfulness of breathing with counting. And with counting, like twenty-one counts, classic. So twenty-one counts, and don't miss a count. If you miss a count, that means you weren't paying attention. Go back to you know, go back to kindergarten, go back to one, and get through twenty-one without losing count. You know, and just like like that, it's kind of cracking the whip. I mean, there's no but no punishment here, but it says you know, there's no time to waste. So show show me your stuff. Count twenty-one breaths without losing. Count, and then okay. Now you're in stride. Okay. Now do whatever you want to do. So something like that. But it's. um, Do you recall anything more specific, or is that sufficient for right now? Uh, That wasn't my question. That wasn't your question. Um, This is. This has no name on it. So if that's not sufficient, uh, then let me know. But um, one way or another, not to dawdle, not to kind of meander in, but to really go right in, as if it's going to be. Well, I've done this many times, and we don't need to do it right now, but. Can you take one, one breath and be mindfully attentive to the whole in-breath and out-breath? Well, when you do that, that's a helicopter. Because you know, oh, but this is easy. One breath, I can do that. And so just have that attitude. I'm going in right now. This is the breath. Right now. Okay, full time. And go right in. Okay? Then the Sutra of Basket Weaving states, those who utter this six-syllable mantra, knowledge mantra, and who constantly apply themselves to its recitation, will be endowed with merit, Reciting this assembles as many Lord Buddhas as are grains of sand in the Ganges. Ten million Tatakatas are present in each pore of that child of good reading. Child of good reading, even the or, or, organums, that or, or, organisms, organisms. I think probably be better. That live in your stomach will become irreversible bodhisattvas, and they will offer their gratitude. The tantra of the Lotus King states, the Lord said, gods, nagas, yakshas. Gandharvas, the fire god Yama, Brahma, Indra, Kumbanda, and all outer and inner malevolent beings are pacified by the recitation of the King of Mantras, Omanipemehum. Oh teacher, please explain how it is so, what is actively happening when one recites this or other mantras, such as the hundred syllable mantra. Oh and the source is a book that I translated called The Space of the Path of Freedom. That's another retreat. A lot of emphasis among, within this text, A Space of Passive Freedom. Again, a great patriarch, a, a extraordinary scholar and adept named Kamechakme Kame Rinpoche, who's right, he's um, really one of the principal lamas in Gyatran Rinpoche's own lineage. He's within the Nyingma tradition of the Peyul, the Peyul Nyingma lineage. So Gyatran is a lineage holder of that. And so this is right, really from one of the great towering peaks within that tradition. And so Gyatranabhachi passed on that transmission to a number of students. I was his interpreter, and we translated two texts together, A Spacious Past of Freedom. And interestingly enough, this was rather early in my translation with, with for Gyatranabhachi, early 90s. Uh, the text begins with a quite elaborate presentation of the preliminary practices, Vajrayana, Vajrasattva, and so forth and so on. Um, and Gyatranabhachi does emph- emphasize them a lot. You know. But when it came to my translating for him, uh, he said, okay, uh, we'll skip that. I think people already know that. And we're just going to go right into the main body of the text. Okay. What do you do after the preliminaries? And interestingly enough, the first, the first practice that Kama Chahmet addresses in this very sequential, very much path, path sequence, culminating again in rainbow body, the very first practice that he attends to after the basic preliminaries, mandala offering, guru yoga, vajrasattva, and so forth, is stage degeneration. <coughs> stage of generation, and among all the stage of regeneration practices, there have to be at least scores, if not hundreds. The one that he that he chose to highlight and really unpack was the stage of regeneration practice of Avalokiteshvara. So the embodiment, the enlightened embodiment of compassion, and then big emphasis on that mantra. And so, um, what can one say? The most commonly recited mantra in all of Tibet, the mantra of His Holiness Dalai Lama very strongly con- uh, connected also with Gawakamapa, so many other lamas as well. But the whole land of Tibet really is said to be like, okay, this is a land specially blessed by Avalokiteshvara. Or India, land specially blessed by Buddhashakumuni. China, land specially blessed by Manjushri. Mongolia, land specially blessed by Vajrapani. Oh. So that's, that's all according to tradition. I find, actually, it's very, very meaningful to me. They're not just any, like, mini, mini, mo. It strikes me as very, very meaningful. And then I'm now going to now go into a venture of pure speculation. So if you don't believe a word, I totally understand and sympathize. But when we raise the issue, OK, well, what happened? You've come out of Asia. Because we just went with the heart of Asia, right down to India and right up to Mongolia, up into Russia. And so there we go, that great big hole. we got We got the embodiments of compassion for, for Tibet, wisdom for China, power for Mongolia, Jinkis Khan territory. Or what happens if you go to the other side of the globe? You know, like Europe, North South America. Do we get one? <laughs> <You know. laughs> How about the other part? And uh, it was one great lama. I think it was... Ah, I remember who it was. It was Kemba Jikma Pinsol. Kemba Pinsol. He passed away several years ago widely regarded as the most accomplished, the most renowned yogi in all of Tibet. He, together with Sogya Rinpoche, are both regarded as emanations or tukus of Lerap Lingba, from whom we have the primary lineage for settling the mind in its natural state. So I had the great good fortune to receive empowerment and teaching from him, uh, including on settling the mind in its natural state. But he came to the West just once. came to Europe, came to, uh, and then to North America. And he, he, was, he gave teachings in California, and then after that in New York. And so I met him in New York. But he flew across, of course, fly, fly across the Rocky Mountains, right in the middle part of the United States, right up to Canada. And what I heard, this is second hand, but from a non-trivial source, is that when he came there, he, he had this big strong intuition. He said, ah, there's, some, there's a kind of a complementarity here between the energy here, right there in the core of North America, uh, and goes all the way down to Mexico, of course, that mountain range goes right down to the, to the Sierra, Sierra what? Sierra Madre. Sierra Madre, yeah? Sierra Madre. Sierra Madre, So it goes from Sierra Madre to, ro- to the Rocky Mountains and right up to the Canadian Rockies. So it's one great big spine. And he looked at that spine going all the way down to, to Mexico and all the way up to well, very, very, very north latitudes. And he said, looking at it, he said, ah, in terms of the energy there, there's a, there's a very strong correlation, a complementarity. Between the with here and Tibet, and the mountains of Tibet, big complementarity, yin yang kind of thing, complementarity. And so, if one thinks, well, okay, well, who is the we call tutelary deity, the Yidam for all of Tibet? Avalokiteshvara, without question, male emanation, male manifestation of personification of enlightened compassion. So, who would be the counterpart? Oh, gee, Tara. Tara, female, manifestation, personification of enlightened compassion. And if we consider, and if we just kind of take America, I mean, I'm, I'm an American, but if we just kind of take, okay, the West is really kind of epitomized in America. It's also very much epitomized in, in Australia and a lot of other countries as well. But America is kind of, it's really the West. If you, if, you, if you skip America, you say, well, what about America? And so if we just kind of have America just for this tiny moment uh, be representing the West, It really strikes me, pardon me, this is just sheer my opinion, but it strikes me that in terms of all the personifications and manifestations of enlightened awareness, the one that we most need to listen to is Tata. That's just my sense. There's that tremendous compassion, that loving, the tenderness, the nurturing quality, the mothering quality, the female quality, can also be ferocious when necessary, but her natural mode is just purely peaceful, nurturing, but feminine, which means not aggressive, not empire building, not conquering, not imperialistic, receptive. receptive. And when we think of, you know, that so much of the opposite happens in America and the West. So We Americans, only the Westerners thought about conquering mountains. It's one of the silliest, goofiest phrases that anybody's ever conceived of. But that's a Euro-American, Australian kind of deal, conquer mountains. And then the notion that you can just look at some land and say, I saw it, therefore it's mine. That really takes some chutzpah to do that. And that was completely common for the Europeans and then the Euro- and Euro-Americans and so forth. And in fact, we even have this, I'm dithering here, I'm going to finish quickly. But we have one politician, and it's so public, I'm going to say his name, Newt Gingrich. I mean, if you really want to have some real fun of just hilarious laughter, you really have to listen to a number of the statements and proposals by Newt Gingrich. Uh, who desperately wanted to be president of the United States, most powerful man in the world, as they say. And his grand idea, I thought it was really quite remarkable idea, was that the, he wanted to send... This was going to be a major agenda if he became president. And so we didn't have that opportunity, because he wasn't the nominee. But what did he want to do? He wanted to ship 13,000 Americans to the moon. He wanted to establish a colony of Americans on the moon, 13,000. You ready for the punchline? Because if you get 13,000 up there, and it's an American colony, then that's a sufficient population to designate the moon as a state. <laughs> 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 the 51st state <laughs> is the moon. I thought that was really a great idea, and I thought what they should really do, you know, if, if we're serious about this, is they they should get some people up there, just like they do sand mandalas, and they should get people, you know, for like 100 square miles, or maybe, you know, 500 square miles, and with red and blue-colored sand, put an American flag right in the middle of the moon, so everybody looks up there, and they know which country that belongs to. So I'm glad you enjoyed that as much as I did. So we Westerners are really some... A very weird strain. Oh, yeah. Lasso. So we still have some minutes. Go ahead, Gudo. You're on. Microphone coming. And so, Omani Pemehung, just see for yourself. I won't try to explain it, but Omani Pemehung, just see what a blessing it has. That's all I can say. Just see for yourself, experientially. Yeah, go Uh First of all, I wanted to say um, thanks a lot, coach, for taking us to the Major League. Oh, yeah. Isn't it marvelous? The um, second thing I wanted to say was uh, actually a question about uh, open presence. And as you know, a lot of uh, modern Dzogchen Lamas are teaching open presence mm-hmm. to students that obviously haven't realized the emptiness. Yeah. Do you think that there's any potential uh, harm that's going to potentially come out of that, or any benefit that could be accrued? Certainly there could be benefit. I mean. When we get people who are popularizers of Vipassana, together with people who are popularizers of Dzogchen, then what we find often is, oh, we we, we practicing Vipassana, you know, what Vipassana really is, it's bare attention, which is really choiceless awareness. Choiceless awareness was defined and coined, the term was coined by Krishnamurti, who is not a Buddhist and doesn't teach Buddhist meditation, but it was kind of like, well, come to the party, we'll just call it Buddhist because, you know, we're friendly. And so from the Vipassana side, taking bare attention, which is a bad translation for mindfulness, it was never the meaning, never the definition, and then equating that with choiceless awareness, which is Krishnamurti's deal, but it's not a Buddhist deal at all, and then taking open presence and saying, you see, they're all the same. Actually, Vipassana and Dzogchen are the same. Well, that means you haven't understood Vipassana or Dzogchen, because Vipassana is not bare attention, it's not choiceless awareness, Buddha never taught choiceless awareness. It's not his term, and not his definition, not his practice, and it's not a Dzogchen practice. Without the view, there is, you know, choice that would done to come up. The term is not a Buddhist term at all. And so, but having said that, so I'm I'm just saying, look, this is true. There is no place in the whole Buddhist canon where mindfulness is defined as bare attention. Not there, it's not true. Uh, having said that, is people practicing bare attention, whether it's just bare attention with walking, bear attention with kind of choices awareness, just open like that. Is that beneficial? The answer is definitely yes. People get a lot of benefit. And there are scientific studies of this. Uh, And what it's very helpful for is, number one, it really gets you mellow, very relaxed, coming into the present moment. And it's very helpful for counteracting rumination. Because you keep on either just being aware of rumination or releasing rumination. And that's a good thing, because rumination is really like a toxin in the blood system of the mind. And so is it beneficial? Yes. And whether you call it bare attention, choices, awareness, or open presence, it's still beneficial. But it's beneficial as um, preschool is beneficial. Preschool really prepares you for p- kindergarten. It's really good. I mean, if you have a three-year-old, start developing social skills, hanging out with other children, learning how to play, learning how to share, um, you know, and so forth and so on. So preschool is really good. It's very helpful. And moreover, since most Westerners are not even in preschool yet, then a lot of people really are attracted to this. It doesn't require any belief. There's no ritual, no institutionalization. There's no reference to ethics. And that can be kind of a hassle. We might have to modify our way of life. And so when it's taught that way, by itself, isolated, decontextualized, it's very beneficial. Just like preschool is very beneficial. And so I see no problem there at all. It's good. It's good. It helps to relieve stress, and that's good. People are really stressed out, and this really helps to relieve stress. It's a wonderful thing. Uh, and then there are so many stress-related problems, and this can then indirectly help a lot of those as well. So as His Holiness Dalai Lama commented, when he, was, when he was asked about you know, this basic mindfulness as moment-to-moment awareness, non-judgmental or whatever comes up, he was asked, what do you think about? that? And he said, that's very good. It helps people. Just don't mistake it for Buddhism. And so if we just take both sides of those, I think he's exactly right. He wasn't being cynical, sarcastic, deprecatory. It's just, just... Don't mistake that. It's not shamatha, it's not vipassana, and not Dzogchen, it's not Mahamudra, it's not anything else. It's bare attention, it's choicest awareness. It's open presence with no view, no meditation, no way of life of Dzogchen. And so is it beneficial? Yeah. And they've demonstrated that. So it's really kind of not arguable, right? So who would want to say anything against something that tens of thousands of people, if not more, have found really beneficial? I wouldn't. I wouldn't want to say, oh, that's stupid or foolish and so forth, any more than I think children who go to preschool are stupid. That's not true. That's not kind. It's not fair. But then if you're in preschool, you're in pre-kindergarten, and you're saying, oh, by the way, when you graduate here, you get a high school diploma. Or actually, no, I mean, an a, a a, a undergraduate degree from Harvard. I mean, I mean a, a PhD from Stanford. That's not helpful. That's harmful. Because then people say, but I'm already practicing Dzogchen. Hey, I'm practicing open awareness. Dude, you know, don't, don't mess with me. I'm already practicing vipassana. I'm sitting here, aware of whatever's coming up. I don't need all that mumbo-jumbo of Buddhist theory, the five skandhas, the eight of this, the twenty of that, all that stuff, twelve links, ah, who needs all of that? You know, I'm already practicing the essence of Buddhism. I'm just being here now. Open presence, like that. Well, it's very nice to practice open presence, choices, awareness, or bare attention. But there's no view in that there's no ethics. You're not developing samadhi because you're not learning how to selectively focus your attention or sustain it. It's not vipassana, the there's no element of inquiry there at all. And it sure as Tutan is tutin, not Dzogchen or Mahamudra. So the only downside I see to it is when people get over enthusiastic and basically just, it's simply ignorance, is not having studied Buddhism and appreciated the, the profundity of its view, that how the view then actually guides you in your meditative practice of vipassana. And that's why the Buddha spoke so extensively for 45 years. About view, uh, no appreciation of that, and throwing that out. Oh, who needs that after all? It's mumbo jumbo, claptrap, and there's another nice word mumbo jumbo, claptrap, and there's a third one. Uh, I can't quite remember. But you know, it's, it, it does disturb me when I see people who don't even know what they're, de- they're, they're denigrating, don't even, haven't even studied it, then just saying, oh, but who needs that? That's the mumbo jumbo part. We don't do that. We do Buddhism without beliefs, we just practice the core. And they're practicing something that's not even Buddhism, you know. I think that's harmful. Because then people's minds, if one teaches that way, then when people eventually encounter an authentic teacher, then you have to break down all these barriers first. You think you're practicing Dzogchen, well, I'm sorry, but you know, that's not Dzogchen. No, there's that's not Dzogchen, and and no, that's not Vipassana. And there's just so much tidying up to do. When people first get into that, and if they just get into that and it's preschool and they say, this is really, really helpful, help to reduce stress, calm your mind, clarity, a lot of benefits, and just leave it at that, then no problem. Very good. But then when, but then when you say it's, it's these higher things, and then, then you close the door, it makes it much more difficult for people actually to listen to and practice authentic teachings. And that's a problem. I think that's, that's a problem. That's not helpful. That's really kind of unhelpful. Because we just have so much garbage disposal to do, of sweeping out all the rubbish of these false false teachings that are simply misrepresenting what the Buddha said, misrepresenting what he said about Vipassana, misrepresenting Dzogchen, and so then one has to spend a lot of time just counteracting all the the garbage, the mumbo-jumbo and the claptrap that's being presented as secularized Buddhism as if this is going kind to of some brilliant new light no it's just a simplified version you know at the very best it's simply a very simplified version which is then fine but then the only part that i really feel is quite strongly is this is not right is saying and this is all there is to it this is all there is to it and the rest of it i oh, never mind that you don't need that well that's not that's not a service that's really not a service so one person was who is very much an advocate of this you know this bare attention being really he asked his he asked Dalai Lama, he asked his holiness. I was there. He asked in a very public setting. Your holiness, don't you think this bare attention, just this moment, moment awareness, not judgment, don't you think this is don't you agree that this is the essence of all meditation? And his holiness said, No, I don't. You know? But even just a few days ago, as I think I mentioned briefly, uh, in a scientific paper by very good scientists, I mean they're Top notch, and they were submitting a paper to a very, very good peer reviewed scientific journal. I'm one of the co authors, so they sent it to me for my, for my input. And it came up in this the paper I've been collaborating with these people for years. You know, they know me, they know what I teach, and so forth. And it's not what I teach. I mean, you, you see my sources. This is not Alan Wallace's Dharma. I always show my source, and then you know where it comes from. Um, but even in this paper, which was a very fine scientific paper on a particular study of certain aspect of meditation, they came up with a statement, meditative training is a method. Meditative training is a method. And I just it really felt like slapping my forehead, you know, like, gosh. And that all comes from this notion that bear attention really is, that's what meditation really is. When you remove all the mumbo jumbo and the claptrap and the, all that kind of stuff, really, what it really boils down to is just be here now. You know? And so these very intelligent people saying meditative training is a method. And then they said of observing thoughts and so forth. And I came right back and said, Oh man, you know, give me a break. How many times do we need to tell you? Meditative training is not a method. It'd be as naive as saying the scientific method is, and then talking about anything. I mean, like it's studying neurons or something. It's it's so uninformed. So I think that's the problem is when he gives a simplified version, that's fine, that's good, good. People, when they're just starting out, give them a simplified version. Don't give them the whole complexity. But then if you say the simplified version is all there is, so maybe I'm I'm repeating myself, give a simplified version, good. Give people preschool, that's good. But just don't tell them this is high school and college and graduate work and you'll get a Nobel Prize by practicing preschool meditation. Um, Because then it not only fools them, but it fools very smart scientists these are really these are really good scientists I'm talking about. And even they were fooled, still saying, you know, it is one method. And then, gosh, it just after a while I just want to walk. I'm just so tired of this. I'm just t- tired of picking up the picking up the bullshit droppings of people who are you know, misrepresenting the Buddhist teachings and meditation especially. I'm just tired of being having to be a they call it a pooper scooper. And you know, I just, you know, because I'd like to just teach Dharma and not have to pick up after the, you know, the ball. So that's the only downside. So if we just focus on what we can do, and then you know that which we can't accept. People don't believe in reincarnation. I have no problem with that. Be a materialist. Be a Jehovah Witness. Be Sufi. I don't, it's your choice. I love the free world. But it's not helpful to dismiss that which we're not understood just because it, it contradicts your materialistic assumptions then that's not being a good scientist, and it's being a ridiculous meditator. It has no inte- intellectual integrity to it. So that's my sense of it yeah. And on the end, having said that, I will end on a positive note. it's really, really wonderful that this whole mindfulness movement, I'm going to everywhere I'm going this summer, going first to Helsinki to Finland, and then I'm going to England and speak at a Buddhist leader uh, retreat, and, and then I'm from there to where is it? Then it's Denmark. No, it's, no, then it's Norway and then it's Denmark, and then it's Russia, and everywhere I'm going, most of the places, I'm coming into a context where people in academia and so forth, general society, have been open to meditation. They've heard about mindfulness, and they like it. They like the idea of being really mindfully present, not just caught up in rumination all the time. So there's the real positive side, that there's one thing, no religious connotations, no, moral, no morality, no worldview, no belief system, and so forth, just something that just totally makes sense be more present, be more mindful with whatever's happening. That's a really good message. And if they would just say, This is what we have to offer, we don't pretend this is all of Buddhism or this is the essence of this or that. This is what we have to offer, and what we have to offer is really good. And that it's helpful in the business con- context, in athletics, in education, in all of these areas. It's really helpful in, you know, generally speaking, in society. And you can be a Christian, you can be a devout fundamentalist Christian, you can be an Orthodox Muslim, and so forth, and this can still be helpful. I think it's great. I think it's really, really good. It opens people's minds, it helps them in a very practical way that they can see, helps practical things they care about like productivity, less wear and tear, and so forth, interpersonal relationships. So if they would just offer their goods and then not be presumptuous and say, you know, and all the add-ons, what I would really call clap-trap and mumbo-jumbo, clear that out. Just offer the good thing you're offering. Then I would say, hallelujah, that's really wonderful, thank you for opening the door to so many. Thousands upon thousands of people to start the meditating. So, like in preschool, start the meditating. And if they're very, very interested, then maybe they'll go for greater depth. And if they're already satisfied, then good, let them be satisfied. All good. Okay? So, that's my sense of it. Oh, yeah. So, it's Saturday. Woo hoo. Good. Enjoy your weekend. See you around.